Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. To find out more, visit us at tomballbible.church. We'll turn your Bibles to Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 18. We are finally beginning the body of the letter. So what we've been doing is we've looked at the theme of the letter, verses 16 and 17, and we've looked at the introduction and the greeting of the letter. But now Paul's done saying what he's going to say, and now he's just going to say it. He's not setting it up anymore. Now he's stepping into it. This is the meat of the letter as it begins, and it begins very specifically. And we need to first, before we step into this verse 18, we need to understand where we are, where, where we are positioned in the book. So it starts out with this section from 1, verse 18. It goes all the way to 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. And this is the section of condemnation. You have to start on the section of condemnation, and we need to see the flow of the book. And the reason you have to start there is before anyone can comprehend the message of the cross and the one who died on that cross, they first must know that they are responsible, that they are guilty by their sins and their actions and their lifestyle to put that one on that cross to pay for their sins. Before any criminal pleads for mercy or a pardon from the judge, they first must know that they are guilty and they are under judgment, rightfully under judgment. So that's where Paul begins the explanation of the good news. And we need to be careful, we specifically, as the people of God here in a place like Texas, we need to be careful from separating the sinfulness of man from what we would call the good news of Jesus Christ, that we'd make them two different things. There can be no good news if there is no bad news. And if man is not utterly depraved and totally sinful, then there is no gospel. God's impending judgment upon the sinfulness of man is integral to the gospel. The gospel message is not a sales pitch to convince you that Jesus is better than all other religions and what they would have to offer. That's not what the gospel is in any way. The gospel message is that Jesus is the only option as opposed to all other religions that does not end in eternal destruction. See, too often we in the West, in America specifically, that we have distorted and diluted the gospel by trying to market Jesus. We've tried to market him, but there's one crucial flaw to that philosophy is that you cannot market the gospel because you can't market something that nobody knows that they need or cares that they want. A market presumes that somebody wants this product and cares about it. But 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. So we can't just say, Jesus is better. He'll make your life better. He's better than all the other options. We have to say that Jesus is the only option. So we can't take on the fast food model that says, hey, we need to just tell everybody that Chick-fil-A is better than McDonald's. It's healthier. It's more fresh. It's just tastes better. The quality's far better. You need to eat that so that you will be better. You'll be better off. No, we need, our message is far more blunt than that. Our message is, if you eat at Chick-fil-A, you will live. If you eat anywhere else, you will die eternally. And that's not a plug to be sponsored by Chick-fil-A, but I will take emails afterwards if you have that capacity. So Jesus is not merely the best option. Jesus is the only option for life eternal. 
Francis Schaeffer said it like this, that other religions stress that you need a guide or some kind of help to teach you how to live or how to die. But these religions do not emphasize the need for salvation from guilt. Our problem is not metaphysical, but moral. What that means is that you are not just confused without Jesus and you need some clarity. You are guilty without Jesus. So that's where Paul's gonna start and he has to start here because there's no other place to start. In in verse 118 through 320, it's gonna be hard words and we're not gonna soften any of them. We're gonna let them be what they are when we see them there. These words need to hit in your mind. They need to hit in your heart like a sandbag dropped out of a 747. It doesn't bounce, it doesn't explode. It just sticks right where it hits with a thud. And that's how it needs to be. We dare not soften anything that God has made hard. And so we're not going to do that. If God's made it heavy, we're going to leave it. So my prayer for you in these coming weeks as we go through this section is that you would come to understand your pre-Christian state. If you're a Christian in this room, that you would come to fully grasp who it is that you were before Christ came. And that that would, secondly, that that would drive you into exuberant and deep worship of God that he would redeem such a worm as you, as the hymnal says. And then thirdly, that my prayer would be that it would spur us on in sharing the gospel. That we would see the depravity of man in these these pages, in these verses, and we would be spurred out to go and to share. So let's look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So we need to give ourselves some tracks to run on for chapter one before we continue on too quickly. Do you see that the pronoun is there? As in them, remember Paul in verse five says, we, talking to saints, we are these people. He says them and there in chapter one. So this is referring to non-Christians. This is referring to the unrighteous, that the following descriptions depict any godless culture, any godless society, no matter how civilized or uncivilized it is, because unrighteousness is not specific to any socioeconomic or governmental structure. It's endemic to all people. And it's specifically in this section, 118 through the end of the chapter in verse 32, is talking to Gentile people people who do not have the Bible. They have no system of morality. They are unrighteous. Chapter two is gonna look at the self-righteous, the Jewish person who does have the Bible, but has missed the gospel. But that's not this chapter. This chapter is the unrighteous, the one without the truth. And what we need to note also in chapter one for this week and for next week is that this is speaking to non-Christians. So the things that are said to be true of individuals is speaking of non-Christians, not Christians, because God doesn't pour out his wrath on his children. Now, Christians can live in a society upon which God's wrath is being poured out and then feel the effects of that as it affects the lost around them. But as Romans 8 says, that we are overwhelmingly conquerors, that this is not true about us, this is true about the lost against whom it says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. What else has been revealed so far to us in chapter one? The very preceding verse, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Very next verse, the wrath of God is revealed, is made plain, is open, is made manifest, is made visible 
The wrath of God is revealed. Same word connecting the gospel and the wrath of God because God's righteous mercy in verse 17 can only be rightly understood against the backdrop of his wrath. And wrath is the Greek word orge, and it means a settled, indignant anger. It's not flying off the handle. It's not an emotional, momentary response of fury. That's thumos. That's human anger. No, this is, this is God's wrath. It is settled, righteous indignation. And this is as much as a part of his character as love, mercy, and grace. So we must not ignore us or sugarcoat over it. And this verse answers the question that you would ask had you read verse 16 and 17 and said, okay, I get it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, but why do I need salvation? Well, you need salvation because you are under God's wrath. That's why. The answer in verse 18 would be, and they, what do they do at the end of this verse? What, they're relishing in one major sin that serves as an umbrella under which many other sins are nurtured. What does it say? It says that they suppress the truth suppressing the truth. Suppress is a Greek word, kateko. And it means this. It means to prevent the doing of something, to cause to be ineffective, to hinder or prevent or restrain. To cause to be ineffective, to hinder, prevent, or restrain. So Paul doesn't say that unrighteous people and ungodly people are ignorant about the truth. He says that they are suppressing the truth. They are hindering the truth. They are causing it to be ineffective. They are the kid at the pool with a beach ball, holding it underwater and shouting to everybody, beach balls don't float. Beach balls don't float. As he holds it underwater. They aren't unaware of the truth. They're suppressing the truth. They know it and they're actively engaged in restraining it from becoming manifest. The first sandbag just hit. We're going to see three more of these sandbags hit, these heavy truths. But you would say, Paul, this is such an outlandish claim. How could you possibly say that they're suppressing the truth, that that they're actively engaged in holding the truth down? These poor people are merely unaware of the truth. They don't know the truth. They need to be educated. Their problem is ignorance of the truth. They don't even know that God exists, much less that they need salvation through a perfect redeemer who is fully God and fully man. How can you say that, Paul? They don't know the truth. Well, Paul is going to run into this line of thinking head on like a Mack truck into a fruit cart. We're gonna see that through verses 18 and 32. And the problem is, is that you're not going to struggle with the rest of these verses as to what they mean. It's going to be very clear and easy to understand what they mean. What you are going to have to wrestle with is whether or not you are going to receive it as what they mean plainly. That's why I said weeks ago, you need to wrestle with the reality of what the word of God is to you and in your life. Because if the word of God is authoritative, then you take it for what it says. You look at, you don't look for something in the Bible. You look at what it is. So we settle that on the front end. So when these sandbags start dropping, we can receive that because verse 19, the proverbial rubber is going to hit the road and it's not going to stop until the end of the book. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, Paul just said 
is that no one who has ever existed on the face of the earth was unaware that God existed. Did you catch that? For what can be known about God is plain to them for God has shown it to them. That's that's what he's saying, that that it's not a murky feeling lodged deep down in their psyche kind of somewhere, but God has made his existence plain to everyone. He's shown it to everyone. Therefore, to deny his existence is to suppress the truth. Secondhand sandbag just hit the ground. So this verse speaks to God's revelation of himself through morals, through morality in our conscience. So the New American Standard Bible, if you have that translation, it says that God made it evident within them, that it's within you. God's made it plain to you by making it evident within you. And we can look at morality as that or conscience as that because nobody's ever gone to a Stone Age tribe, found them headhunting each other, asked an individual headhunter, do you want this to happen to you? And them say, yeah, I'm fine with that. No, no headhunter wants his own head hunted. No rapist wants to be raped. No murder wants to be murdered. No thief wants to be stolen from. So therefore, you know what is right, but are choosing to do what is wrong. You have an innate sense of morality because all people are image bearers of God. Therefore, they do have this intrinsic sense of morality. They know what they are doing is wrong, but they choose to do it anyway. And they know that they are not animals purely subject to their own urges. Because when we see a full-grown adult human man punch in the face and knock out cold a full-grown adult human woman, everybody says, rightfully so, that was wrong. That is always wrong. But yet we go to the zoo and we look at a full-grown male gorilla pummel a female gorilla and we say, that's just what they do. They're animals. So we know we're not animals because we know we have a moral compass innate within us on some level because if you get knocked out, you don't like that. You can say all you want in a sterile college classroom that morality is relative, but as soon as you get in your car and you drive out on the highway and somebody T-bones you, you demand justice. Morals are no longer relative. You were wrong and you should pay instantly right now. So Paul says, what is known about God is plain to them. And Paul just stated that God has done something. He's shown people that he exists and evident within themselves. And has God ever done anything that failed? Has God ever merely attempted something? Or does God only accomplish things? See, if he only accomplishes things, then it must be true that this verse is true, that it is plain to all people. All people do know that because God never says how to do something and comes up short. So how else, Paul, does God make himself plain and evident that he exists to all people? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How? In the things that have been made. See, this is how God makes himself plain to all. A second way is his creation. Paul is now going to explain that God has showed himself and made himself evident in creation. All human beings exist in space. We take up material space. So therefore we are in and we are God's handiwork. 
And since God's visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, God's eternal power is clearly perceived in nature because no matter what I do, I can't make something out of nothing. I can't create matter. All I can do is rearrange existing materials. That's all I can do. Whether I'm an artist or a construction science guy, all I can do is take materials that already exist and assemble them in ways that are helpful or beautiful. But I can't make anything out of nothing. I can't do that. And no matter what I do, I'm subject to all the laws of nature. I can't breathe underwater and I can't defy gravity no matter what I do. So who is holding all these systems in power? Who is holding all these systems together? Somebody who has eternal power. And God's divine nature is clearly perceived because all of nature already existed when I got here. And if I ask my grandfather, hey, granddad, when you were here, when you were born, were there bears and birds and thermodynamics and gravity? Was that all here when you got here? Yeah, I was here when I got here. I go back to all my relatives, all my ancestors, all the way back to Adam. Hey, Adam, when you got here, did metamorphosis already exist? Did the water cycle already exist? Did chlorophyll already exist in plant leaves and that process makes oxygen and then we breathe that out and carbon dioxide and then trees take that in? Did that already exist? Yeah, that already existed. Eve, same thing. It was already existed when I, when I showed up. When I opened my eyes, I didn't have to wonder whether or not there was order and divine nature because I saw all of these things functioning. And then God spoke to me. And I was like, oh, it's you. You're the one who did all of this. It was clearly seen. If anything exists at all, it means that something has existed for eternity because we don't believe in spontaneous Generation. Nothing can spontaneously come into being. So when secular science says something like a condensed ball of matter or dust matter existed from all of eternity and then it exploded, we have to call their bluff because that defies the law of inertia. If it's just sitting there inactive for all of eternity, the law of inertia says that something at rest stays at rest until some outside force acts upon it. So therefore, the very foundation is contrary to a law of science that everybody agrees upon. So we have to be able to call their bluff. There must be what acted on that ball of dust to make it explode. What acted? Something had to do something. There must be some self-existent, transcendent, uncaused first cause. And we call that self-existent, transcendent, uncaused, first caused God, our father in heaven. Because if something exists at all, something has to have existed for eternity. And this is the first time that Paul's made this argument. He makes this argument twice in the book of Acts. In Acts 14, he and Barnabas are in Lystra and they're sharing the gospel and then they heal this guy and then the crowd start worshiping them as gods and they say, no, 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 we're not gods. We're men just like you. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 15, he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. What was the good news? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul makes the case to these pagan people trying to worship them as Hermes and Zeus, 
says, no, 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 we're created beings just like you are. And God didn't leave himself, the real true God, didn't leave himself without the witness. What was the witness? Rain came and food came and it's always happened. You've always had food. You've always had water. You've always had these things. And God is the one behind it all. And then three chapters later, he's in Athens on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And he shares the gospel with these people because they have all these idols set up and they have one to the unknown God, an unnamed God, just in case we missed one. And Paul says, hey, I know the one you missed. Let me tell you all about him. And he starts going through creation that God has created all of these things. And in God, we live and move and have our being. And then he ends that this one, if he's the creator, then he stands rightfully as judge over you and your sinfulness. But if you will repent, he will grant you forgiveness. So he leads to the gospel through that. And Paul's not the first guy in scripture to even make this argument from creation. David does in Psalm 19, one and two. David says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and sky, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. David doesn't say that the heavens declare the glory of God to everybody who already has a relationship with him. David says the heavens declare the glory of God, period, always. The heavens are always declaring the glory of God. That's what they do to everything, It's not as if people who see the creation and then reject God just missed out on the secret glasses that we got when we became Christians. No, David says it goes to all people. They have seen the revelation of God in nature and chosen to reject it. They have suppressed the truth. Francis Schaeffer says again, he says, so often Christians argue intellectually for the existence of God using arguments such as the need for a first cause, the one we just talked about. And this has value, he says, But the truth is much deeper than this. It isn't just that our world had a first cause, but that we are surrounded with the good things of God. He fills our every human need. And this should be ample testimony to his existence. You have your needs met. You have food. You have water. All this stems, this whole thing that Paul's building into the guilt of human beings is that creation is here You are here and everything around you is testifying to God. He leans so heavily upon creation for this argument that the unrighteous really are suppressing the truth and they are really and truly rightfully in the crosshairs of God's wrath. So you can't help but see that if you concede Genesis, you lose Romans. If you forfeit Genesis 1, then you lose John 1, and Romans 1. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And everything that came into being came into being through him, the word being Jesus. And then Romans 1 says that God has identified himself by all things who have been made, clearly perceived his divine nature through creation. And if you can see Genesis 3, the fallenness of man, then you concede and you lose, you forfeit John 3, And Romans 3, because John 3 talks about the second birth of fallen man. And Romans 3 talks about the regeneration and justification of fallen man. So if you concede Genesis, you forfeit Romans. That's why we stand so firmly upon Genesis. Because if God is the creator, then we rightly, as unredeemed people, stand on the crosshairs of his wrath. We stand on Genesis because the apostles did. That's what they made their argument from. And if Genesis isn't true, then Romans 18, 19, and 20 is a lie. We have nothing to stand on. 
And God becomes a monster for unveiling his wrath against truly unwitting people. But where does that leave unbelieving people in a world that shouts unmistakably the existence of God? Where does that leave everybody? If this is all true, and we get to verse 20, at the end of the verse, it says, so that they are without excuse. That's where it leaves them. That's where it leaves everybody. Nature isn't enough to get you saved. Creation isn't enough to get you saved, but it is enough to get you hungry. It is enough to get you wondering, where did this all come from? And asking honest questions, an honest, rational person existing in the world with everything all around them, morality within them would say, this has to have come from somewhere. And I know it's not the moon and the sun had a baby and it was a white buffalo and then that became our God. I know it's not that. Somebody somewhere made that up and we worked backwards from it. And all an honest, rational person will be set on a quest for answers that lead to the foot of the cross. Therefore, man has no excuse. The third sandbag just hit. The question often arises though, and rightly so, it's valid. Well, what about the people in the deepest, darkest jungles who never heard the gospel at all? Don't they have an excuse? That's the presumption. Surely God wouldn't condemn them if they never heard the gospel. They never had a chance to respond. But Romans 1.20 says that they are without excuse. And before you get bent out of shape and get all upset, let's work backwards from this presupposition that God won't condemn someone who never heard a clear gospel presentation. Because if that's true, then we need to cease all missions efforts across the globe. We have to stop the missions efforts because we can't let the gospel spread into the far reaches of the globe. And if that's true, we need to be supporting oppressive governments who hate the Bible and hate Christianity because then there'll be generations of people born who never knew and then therefore get to go to heaven. And if that's true, then we should be praying that spiritual darkness would cover the entirety of the globe and that Jesus' name would not be named anywhere because then that would guarantee the salvation of all of those people. But if you send a missionary there, And then they share the gospel and then those people don't believe. Well, now you just went and messed it all up. Now you blew it. Now they're responsible. Now they can be judged. If you had just not gone, then they would be fine. But that's a case from logic. Do we have a case from scripture? From the authority that governs all that we say, do and think and believe? Absolutely we do because God doesn't contradict himself. Because if this is true, if you just don't go and tell them, then they're without excuse and they get to go to heaven, then that contradicts the very words of Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then we, we shouldn't do that. We should disobey the great commission. And Jesus goes on to say in Acts chapter one, verse eight, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses where in Jerusalem? Okay, people know about Jesus there. In Judea, a lot of people still know about it there. Samaria, uh, he went to talk to that Samaritan woman and to the farthest outermost reaches of the globe. So either God's contradicting himself or Romans 1, 20 is true. And that sounds harsh, but do we have any accounts of, of anyone in scripture responding rightfully to the revelation that they've been given, the limited light that they've been given, and they responded honestly. They didn't make out or reason out other gods. They're saying, what is this? How did we get here? Asking those honest, hard questions and not taking shortcuts from the devil. Has God ever sent someone to them? Have you read Acts chapter eight with the Ethiopian eunuch? 
not from Jerusalem, not from the same continent as Jerusalem, but he's there. And somehow he got a hold of Isaiah 53, no context, no clue as to what this means. He's reading it and utterly dumbfounded. And what does God do? Supernaturally airlifts Philip from Samaria to the road where the Ethiopian eunuch is right next to the chariot. And then he says, Hey, guy reading the Bible. Do you understand that? Nope. And then he shares the gospel with them. That happens again in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, this guy who's honestly saying Mars is not God. Venus is not a God. There has to be another God. And he's trying to be God fearing. He has no clue as to what it is he's doing. No clue of the truth of the gospel, but he's trying to be reverent towards whoever it is that this is God who's revealed himself in nature. What does God do? He sends him Peter, an uneducated blue collar fisherman with the message of the gospel and Cornelius' entire household and estate all believe the gospel. So yes, God is faithful that anyone who's rightfully, honestly responding to the revelation that they have will be given the gospel because that's another reason why we hold to God's sovereignty in electing Christians. Because what if you have an Ethiopian eunuch or you have Cornelius who is responding? You have somebody off in the jungles that responded to this truth. I know it's not the son who made all these things. I know it's not a snake God. I know it's not just spontaneous. Something happened. Who is it? Who is this God? He must be personal. These things are too detailed. I am relational. He's responding to all of these truths, but God's not sovereign in election. So that guy dies on the quest. That guy dies wondering forever because no Christian got it underneath their skin to just go out there and share with them. But if God is sovereign in election, then that person will be brought the gospel and they will hear and they will believe. So we cling to those truths as Christians. In verse 21, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul just said right there, all people are aware of the existence of God. They know God, but they don't honor him and they don't thank him. They failed to do that. Isn't that the heart of every carnal person, every lost person? I want to honor myself and I have no one to thank but myself, so I am thankless. And isn't that just survival of the fittest, right? If I am surviving, therefore I am fittest, therefore I am due honor and you should be thanking me. That's the heart of an unbeliever. They know God, but they don't honor him as God or give thanks. Every human being understands that there is a God. Verse 21 says, Fourth sandbag just hit, but they refuse to honor him. They refuse to worship him. They are suppressing the truth. And in verse 21, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is where they inevitably end up. They inevitably end up in futility. That word means in Greek to be given over to worthlessness. Futility is incapable of producing any useful result. That's what futility means. Incapable of producing any useful result. That's how we can get headlines in our world today that says world's first man delivers a baby. That's a futile mind incapable of producing any useful result. That that would even be plausible that a man could deliver a baby and they're given over to the suppressing truth is you're subsequently trapped in futile thinking. You, you can't not be according to the scriptures that they can have gaping holes in their ideologies and yet not see them in the slightest. 
that in the name of tolerance, we are going to violently suppress all those we deem to be intolerant. See also every American college campus. And that, that these, these actresses in Hollywood are going to rightfully, and we would just say rightfully, bring down these men who have sexually abused and assaulted them, rightfully so, but then turn around and pose nude or enact sexual things on screen and claim no inconsistency whatsoever. Or, or you have what I heard the other day, which is maybe the saddest thing I've ever heard, parents suing a doctor for wrongful birth that you should have told me that my child was going to have cystic fibrosis. You missed that. And now my child has cystic fibrosis. And if you had told me, I would have aborted this baby. And at the same time, in the same article, they're claiming to love their born baby while they're suing over, I would have killed this baby if you had just told me. How can they not even see it? Because it comes, it obviously it's born from the father, that, that father of lies, the devil, but we, we do have a, a, a linchpin to point to where this all comes back to. It goes back to the grandfather argument of them all from the origin of species from Darwin himself. And I brought my copy of Origin of Species. But so you didn't know, I just found something on Wikipedia that anybody could put up there. That his own inconsistency, he can't even see it. And it's two pages apart. Let me read this to you. He says, to suppose that the eye, meaning the eyeball, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, to think that that could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. That that seems absurd in the highest degree to believe that the eyeball evolved. And then he says this on the very next page, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ like an eyeball existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. But I can find no such case. What about the eyeball that you mentioned two pages earlier? It can't be explained by anything but Romans. Their futile minds, their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the sad reality of being in that state of being, the suppression of the truth that they truly believe that beach balls don't float. They've suppressed the truth for so long. See, this should shape how you interact with your neighbors, the people on the highway, and the kids at your little league game. Because of course that person on the highway doesn't want you to cut them off. And of course that neighbor doesn't want you to be putting their grass clippings in your yard. And of course, that the parents, they're screaming at these umpires. They wouldn't want somebody coming to their part-time job when they were 19 years old and getting screamed at. Of course, they wouldn't want that, but yet they do it anyways because their futile minds have been darkened. Their hearts are darkened. You are the enlightened ones. You know the truth. So therefore that should color how you interact with everyone who is lost, that they are futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. So if you're raving and ranting at Fox News for being so inconsistent or CNN or whatever it is, you are acting in futility for not knowing that this is the way that unbelievers think because they cannot do anything else. 
They've been darkened all the way through. In verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's not, they aren't fools because they're intellectually deficient. They're fools because they do not fear God. Because Proverbs 1, 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That's why they're fools. Not because they're intellectually deficient. They're smart. But being a slave to futility doesn't stop a carnal person from claiming the opposite. I'm not a fool. I am wise. I'll never forget my freshman year at Texas A&M. took Geology 101 because it sounded a lot easier than physics and chemistry. It was rocks. And then I found out that class was called Rocks for Jocks. I was like, perfect. This is where I need to be. So I'm in there in that class. The first class is, of course, a throwaway day. It's syllabus day. You don't have to go if you don't want to. The second day, real things happen. So the professor gets up there. His name's Dr. Hash. Dr. Hash gets up in front of the class, and he's going to start in the beginning, talking about geology. And he says, uh, there was a spinning ball of dust, and then it exploded, and then we got the cosmos from that. And I had made this friend, two new friends, actually, um, and one of them, his name's Joey Bellington, he ended up being my, one of my best friends and still is. He was in my wedding. I was in his wedding. And I had known him for about a week. And then this class is like the lecture hall at A&M. So it's like 300 people, 350 people, tons of people. And it's the first week. So everybody goes because it's the first week you have to go. So you can tell your parents you went to class. And he raises his hand that day and says, Dr. Hash, what started the spinning ball of dust? And this professor is there and goes, um, nobody knows. Moving on. And then changes the PowerPoint slide to the next one. So then you're saying to me that a tenured professor of 44 years with a PhD at a tier one research institution has built his entire scientific paradigm off of nobody knows. How is that not Romans 1.22 claiming to be wise? They have become fools. That you have all of these academics and all of these credentials, but you've built it off of nobody knows. Ha. They, can be, they became fools in Greek is actually one word. It's not three words, it's just one word. And it's the Greek word moreno. And you can, you can logically get to the word that we get moron from that that they just don't even know. It sure looks like beach balls don't float when the kid's pushing them underwater. But eventually that kid's arms are gonna give out and that beach ball's gonna come bouncing out. So we have to know this truth. So why, Paul, why spend so much time talking about sin? Why spend so much time talking about the state of the unrighteous? We're gonna get to the self-righteous later, but why spend so much time on this? Why focus on their sin so much? Because once someone is convinced that they are a sinner standing in judgment, it's not very hard to convince them that they, that there's, that they need a savior. And once someone is convinced that they need a savior, it's not a stretch to convince them that there is a savior. And then once you get them there, then it's not anything at all to convince them with an open Bible that Jesus Christ is that savior. So that's why you spend so much time on the sinfulness. So instead of trying, as we so often do, to alleviate the enormity of sin, we need to just lean into the reality of it, that we acknowledge its nature as something that is rightfully condemned and punished eternally by God. 
Because then now the person who receives that message is no longer looking for a redefinition. They're looking for escape from punishment. And that's where you and I come in. Because you and I can come in with the one route to that escape. That Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And that he is available to all who would confess him as Lord. He will be saved. So why focus on this? Because this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why. Father in heaven, we do thank you for telling us so much of the truth. We have so much of the truth available to us. Thank you for enlightening to us, those who are blessed to grow up in, in very Christian homes where we, we were converted early on, and we know that is an amazing thing, but you tell us who we were at five, that we were running from the truth, we were suppressing it, and that everybody's walking around suppressing the truth who does not acknowledge you as God, and that we can walk out armed with that knowledge, unfrustrated by the inconsistencies of the world's ideologies, Un, unflapped by sin enacted against us when we know they wouldn't want it enacted against them. And we can know the truth because you have opened our eyes to behold the truth of the gospel and you have converted our hearts and made us new creatures. Let us go forth as new creatures, understanding and acting rightfully according to what is true in a world that is lost and has a futile mind and a darkened heart. And let us go with the power of the gospel, the only thing capable of making those minds no longer futile and flipping the light switch on in their hearts. Because we know that light always drives out darkness. Darkness cannot drive out light. We know that Christ is that light, the light of the world who came to save us from our sins. So Lord, be rightfully worshiped this morning. Let our hearts sing your praises as we conclude in singing. And let us do so joyfully and thankfully, honoring you as God, as those who have been saved by you. We pray this in Christ's name. To find out more, visit us at tombaubible.church.